0: Our scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. As we're continuing our series uh, through the parables, the proclamation, the name of the sermon, the title, I should say, is The Wages of Grace. Would you join your hearts with mine as I lead us in a prayer of illumination? Oh Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive the word of Christ. That we might grow ever more into His image and be pleasing to you. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 20, verses one through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Robert F. Smith is an incredibly successful entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist and billionaire. In 2019, he gave the commencement speech at Morehouse College, during which he made an extraordinary announcement. He said this to the graduating class gathered on that day, My family is going to create a grant to eliminate your student loans. Needless to say, there were plenty of happy young people in that audience on that day. And initially, uh, Smith's actions and his speech uh, received praise uh, from the press and from all those who had learned about his magnanimity on that day, his generosity, his giving back, particularly to the black community. But it didn't take long for the criticism to begin to emerge, for resentment to begin to bubble up, for envy to rear its head from those who thought that this was unfair. Alana Akhtar, a journalist in the Washington Post, wrote about this in May 2019 in the Post. And she said about how many African Americans who had served and sacrificed to pay for their children's education felt a little burned by Smith's gift. And Michelle Singletary, a a personal finance columnist for the Post, She expressed the the mindset of some of these folks. She said this about the resentment regarding Smith's generosity. Those not on the receiving end of this amazing gift might have thought to themselves, even just for a second, what about us? What do we get for doing the right thing and saving for our kids to go to college debt free? Smith's magnanimity, his generosity, were seen by many as unjust and unfair. What do you think about that? What do you think about what Smith did? What do you think about the parents of the class that graduated the year before or the year after? What do you think? This morning we look at the parable of the laborers in the vineyard and our goal is to understand the point of the parable what jesus is trying to teach us today and we'll go about that we'll try to achieve that goal in the fashion we have been doing so we'll look first at the parable itself the characters the facts the circumstances the story and then we'll ponder the parable a little bit think about a question or two that it makes us ask or helps us Uh, when we ponder it, to really get at what maybe is going on here, what Jesus is trying to get us to think about. And then finally, we'll look at the point. We'll answer the so what question about the parable. We'll get to the bottom of it, what it means for us today, what Jesus is asking of you and me today, what he's probing in our hearts through this story, through this parable. So the parable, the pondering, the point, let's begin with the parable itself. And we have three characters in our parable, don't we? We have, first of all, the landowner, the one who owned this vineyard. He's the one who goes about all the hiring, right? He negotiates all the wages. He sets the pay for these workers. Our second character or cast of characters is, are the, uh, the laborers, the workers that get hired, these day laborers who are looking for work, and the, and the vineyard owner hires them. So they can feed their families we also have a third character there the manager the one working under the landowner who has a very minor role just one job he's the one who distributes or pays out the wages to the workers at the end of the day those are our characters the vineyard or landowner the workers and the manager and the story is relatively simple if you were listening to the children's message you got the story The landowner went out to hire people, presumably it was during the time of pruning or the time of harvesting and agricultural work, there are those seasons where there are a massive amount of work, intense amounts of work where you need to increase your labor and that was likely the case here. And of course the landowner goes to where the laborers are, he goes to the marketplace where these day laborers would gather in the hopes of being hired. This image, this kind of scene is not all that foreign to us. It is something you could witness today in an agricultural community where day laborers gather in hopes of being hired. Sometimes at places like Home Depot or Lowe's in certain places in the country, people gather in the morning day laborers hoping as the contractors come to pick up equipment and supplies that they might get hired for that day. That's kind of the scene that we see here in this story. And I think it's fair to say and fair to assume that those workers gathered there were not well off financially. They had no permanent employment. They gathered in the workplace in the hopes of being hired so that they could go back at the end of the day with something to offer to their families. Their worst fear was to be standing there at nighttime without any wage, with nothing to bring home. And as the story unfolds, as Darlene told it this morning in the children's message, there are these various trips that the landowner makes at various times of the day. First thing in the morning, likely 6 a.m., and then again at 9 a.m., and again at at 12 uh, p.m., and then again at 3 p.m., and then finally the fifth and final trip at 5 p.m. in the evening. Those many trips really are not all that fanciful, this could have actually played out that way as, uh, as a vineyard owner. He would want to hire the right amount of labor. And he needed to get this done before the end of the day. But like all employers, did not want to overhire. And so he goes back again and again hiring. That's not the fanciful part about this story. That's not the surprising part. The number of trips is not the surprising part. The surprising part is that everybody got paid the same. The people that got hired at 6 a.m. bright and early, and those who were hired at 5 p.m., they all were paid the same daily wage. They all got the same wages regardless of how many hours they worked. The boys hired at 6 a.m. got the same wage as those hired at 5 p.m. And you can probably imagine how those 6 a.m. boys felt about that you could probably guess but we don't have to guess do we you don't have to guess because we know because it's how we would feel isn't it we know it in our hearts how they felt And we know it from the text. We're told in the text how they felt. Matthew chapter 20, verses 10 through 12. Now, when the first came, those hired earliest, the 6 a.m. boys, if you will, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And then our story ends with the landowner giving his response and explanation to those who have charged him with being unjust and unfair. And he says to them, he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, the first will be last. That's our parable. That's our story. So let's do some pondering about that. And maybe your own mind is pretty active at this moment, asking questions of this text. We should ask questions of it. We're the audience hearing the story. What does it bring to your mind? Well, it brings to mind a few questions for me at least. Is God a communist? There's a question. Is Jesus against equal pay for equal work? In other words you can really boil it down to one real core question. What does this parable teach us, if anything, about economic justice regarding wages? Right, that's what it's about. Wages and fairness and feelings around it. What does it tell us? Now, let me state up front that I don't believe the parables are where we should get our economic policy about wages and things like that. But pondering that question, because it's clearly there, may help us to unfold this uh, parable, to understand it better, to gain some insights about it. So think about that a little bit. Give it some food for thought. Ponder it a bit. On the one hand, you could look at this parable and think how Generous this landowner is to these workers. He pays everyone the same wage, regardless of how long or how hard they work. Sounds like some type of welfare, some maybe universal basic income. Sounds a bit socialist to me. On the other hand, if you think about it a little bit, You could look at this landowner as kind of miserly or shrewd. What did he pay these people? A daily wage. We know the basic numbers here. It's the wage of subsistence level. It might be something we would compare to our own minimum wage. This is not generous as far as you know, an extravagant wage, this is basic level minimum wage. Sounds a bit capitalist to me. Is this landowner generous or miserly? What about fairness? If you think about it a bit, you can say that this landowner's unjust and unfair. How would you feel if you worked all day? And those who worked just an hour got paid the same as you. You would feel that that would be unfair, that it violates a sense of economic justice, equal pay for equal work. You see what this parable is about? This is what Jesus is doing. He's being provocative. The parables are a punch in the face. He's trying to uh, get his audience to ask these kind of questions, to think through it, to have us think through it. He's trying to provoke. He wants his audience to think about fairness and justice. And what better topic to get at that sense of human ideas of fairness and justice other than wages what you get paid isn't it a perfect thing we all know exactly what Jesus is talking about because we've all felt it about what we got paid somewhere along the line think about how many questions we ask as a culture that surround the whole idea of economic justice of what people get paid today is Super Bowl Sunday I mean, you can't fathom the amount of money that is going to be expended and bet and whatever around this and what people are going to get paid. And what people paid for a right to be present. How many times have we heard that kind of sense of unfairness that a football player makes so much more, astronomically more, than a school teacher or a cop? Right? We ask these questions about wages and fairness. How many times have you heard economic justice expressed uh, with the difference between what a CEO makes and a line worker makes? And we ask that question, why is it a thousand times more? That's unfair. That's wrong. But it's not just those kind of big macro questions it's the micro questions we have in our daily lives in each of our lives how about when that colleague at work gets a bigger bonus than you or a larger wage increase than you how do you feel about that particularly if they're a slacker or whatever one of the goals of second-wave feminism was to secure equal pay for equal work for women you see, compensation immediately brings up these ideas of justice. And so Jesus uses it here in this parable to provoke those kind of questions in us because it worked back then and it works for us today. We don't have to build a bridge in that sense. So what do you think about this landowner? Socialists, capitalists, fair, unfair? What do you think about the economic fairness of what occurred here? Do you agree with the economic policies of this landowner? Or do you sympathize with the 6 a.m. people? Be honest. I hope you're searching and asking yourself those questions because that's what Jesus wants you to do. That's what he's doing like a master surgeon as he scalpels around in, in your heart this morning. He used compensation and labor in this parable because he wanted to spark that sense of injustice in his audience, in us. He was being deliberately provocative, punching us in the face with this. And the interpretive or hermeneutical question for us is why? What's his purpose? What's he trying to teach us? What is he getting at here? And that leads us directly into the third and main point of the sermon this morning. Let's get to the point. What is the point of this parable? What is Jesus trying to teach us here? So let's think about the point. And when it comes to the point of this parable, there have been really two major points of view regarding what the point of the parable is. And by far the most popular one is this first one, that the point of it is about the nature of God's grace to us in salvation, that it's about God's generosity to us in salvation. According to this view, the parable portrays the goodness of God apart from our works, our meriting it, our being compensated with rewards and work, The point is to show us the nature of grace how marvelous and wonderful and amazing God's grace is how extravagant it is and you can see this in all the really the commentaries and you know I I, I get these various kind of uh, resources for illustrations and they're you know they're indexed by various Text and if you read commentaries or you search databases for illustrations about this type of text, this text itself, what you will find is many of them will be illustrations about grace, undeserved favor, unmerited favor. Let me give you an example of one of those. It comes from Denise Banderman of Hannibal, Missouri. It's a, a story um, about a professor who's administering a test to his students. And it's a big important final test and all the students come into the classroom and on their desks they find the examinations and they're all face down and they all sit in their little seats there, they get ready to take the test, the professor says turn the papers over and then voila, they turn them over and all of the answers have been filled out by the professor. Nice, right? Never happened to me in my life. And they all got the same grade, regardless of how hard they worked, whether they studied at all. And then the professor in the story says this, Some things you learn from lecture, some things you learn from research, but some things you can only learn from experience. You've just experienced grace. One hundred years from now, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your name will be written down in a book, and you will have had nothing to do with writing it there. That will be the ultimate grace experience. That's the most common view. You get the picture, right? There are stories and stories, illustrations that they illustrate. This is about grace. This is the most popular view of this parable in evangelical circles, certainly. And it's certainly one that I have espoused myself in preaching on this text. And while I don't think that is a wrong view, I think perhaps I didn't get it entirely right. That maybe that message is there about God's grace, but maybe there's something else here also. That Jesus may be getting at something even deeper, but perhaps a little more disturbing. And the reason I came to that conclusion is for a couple of uh, issues. One of them is related to my study of the text and also in reading Klein Snodgrass's wonderful book, his comprehensive book on the parables, he points out a couple of problems with that grace interpretation. And I find them somewhat persuasive. He says, I'm not sure that's right for a couple of reasons. Here's one of the reasons He notes that no one in this parable really receives a gift of grace, do they? Each of these laborers were hired, a wage was negotiated, and they performed services. They did work. Everyone got paid, and everyone worked. And the last time I checked it about grace... At least in the Protestant version of our understanding of salvation, our Reformed version of salvation, there's nothing about the cooperation of a con- or contribution of our work in any way. That salvation is not a mixture of work and grace. It is grace alone. Isn't that the proclamation? So if this is about grace, we Reformed people might be in trouble. A second point he makes Is If this is about grace and the grace of salvation, it's not really all that extravagant, is it? It's not extravagant grace. I mean, what do these people get paid? They got paid minimum wage. It doesn't seem to me that grace is a good illustration, that minimum wage is a good illustration of grace, is it? I mean, one would expect if this was about God's grace, His glorious, extravagant grace, they would have gotten paid an extraordinary wage we would expect the parable of the prodigal son right that type of extravagant grace that that parable Luke 15 is about salvation and grace not much generosity here and on top of that there's a textual issue There's that weird ending of the parable. Did you you think about it? Jesus tells this parable, and then he summarizes a little explanation. This is kind of a rabbinical way of teaching. You tell a little story, and then you summarize it. You give the meaning at the end. And The meaning here in verse 16, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. It seems an odd phrase for grace. It seems to be aimed more at rank and status, at ordering, at how we relate to one another in comparative or relative terms. It doesn't seem to fit a grace paradigm, if you will. And it's so much true that some scholars argue that Matthew misplaced that verse. That it didn't really belong with this parable. Originally, it somehow got attached to it because it seems disjointed with the idea of grace. And then there's this little curious part. And it has to do with the last chapter, the one right before this, chapter 19. If you could put up that slide of Matthew 19, 27 through 30. So this is what precedes the parable that Jesus told. Remember, the chapters and verses of the Bible are not original to the text. We added those later. And sometimes they're really poor choices. Here's Matthew 19, 27 through 30. Then Peter said in reply, this is the Jesus, Look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit life, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. You can take that down he uses the same line there to end the passage right before this parable and then he launches and tells them this parable this is a parable to the disciples and do you see what they were worried about what their problem was what peter was saying there he was worried about compensation right Who's worked the hardest? I mean, the twelve, right? Here we are. What are we going to get? Peter's line is so perfect, so on point. What then will we have? We left everything to follow you. We're the 6 a.m. boys. And Jesus says to them, the last shall be first. The first will be last. You see what's going on there it's something about rank and status and comparative and relative kind of relationship between people and this gets me to the second point of view of what this may be about not that it's not about grace at all but that there's something deeper that jesus is getting at and that other point of view is that this is about envy that this is about the human proclivity propensity towards envy envy Our envious response to God's grace bestowed on other people. Our lack of grace towards others. Snodgrass puts it this way, The parable focuses on the goodness of the owner and the complaint, the envy of those who thought they should get more for their work. You see, what Jesus is trying to do in this parable is teach us about God and about ourselves. And he's trying to teach us that God's ways are not our ways. That his economy is not the same as our economy. And that we need to change our ways and be more like God. This is a parable directed at the envious. And what that means is it's directed at us. At you and me. The workers who were hired first were envious of those hired last. Wouldn't you be? We all feel that if we were those people, like that we were treated unfairly. And we're doing that because we're comparing ourselves to others, and that makes us envious. The problem arose when they judged fairness, not in individual terms. They all got a fair wage. They all agreed to it. They felt unfairness and injustice when they compared things in relative terms and isn't that what we always do as humans always comparing ourselves our whole economy a free market economy and some level is based on envy it's what makes all this stuff work online right the influencers I want to be like that person I want to have their life I want to look like them This is a parable that probes our envy of other people's good fortune. And ultimately, probes our grumbling inside against God's goodness and justice to all people. And isn't that so true of who we are as humans? Isn't that what we do? We are always comparing ourselves to others and we are judging our own happiness. We're making it dependent on how we feel about other people, about this kind of envy that we have. You see study after study about this. If you want to be really happy, put yourself in a community where everybody else is less well-off than you. It's true. It's verifiable. People in Manhattan aren't happy because everybody around them is rich, right? But you, you're the richest person in town. You're the best off in a group. You feel better and happier. And it's perverse, but it's true about us. And you know it's true about you. Have you ever had a coworker or a neighbor? Somebody comes into good fortune. Something happens that you think they don't deserve that. Right, And you start thinking of all the reasons why they don't deserve that. And then you start thinking, I deserve that. I mean, I've done this. I've done that. What is that first little twinge of reaction when something happens? I mean, maybe you eventually process it and you get to the point where I could be happy for someone else. But sometimes that first emotion that comes into your heart is that motion of envy. That something is unfair about it. And I know you do that because I do it too. We're all like Peter. What then will we have, Jesus? What about me? What do I get? It's like that story in the beginning when I talked about Robert E. Smith and his generous gift at Morehouse College. What did people start asking? It's not fair. What about me? What then shall we have? You get that, right? I'm going to tell you a little story about myself, a little revelation. It's got a little bit of a political thing in it, so but it's not about politics. Please don't send me emails. <laughs> it's a story about me. I'm not proud of it, so, um, you know, I'm not trying to make political hay here. But it fits perfectly, and it's honest, and it's about the envy of my own heart. It's about policy, not politics. So everyone has different views about paying for their kids' college education, how to do that, and I am in no way suggesting that mine is the way to do it. There are a variety of views about this, about children having skin in the game, about Uh, Some people can't do certain things because of their situation or whatever. I'm not trying to promote my view, but in my life and my wife and I, when we decided to have children, one of the things we committed to was to save for their college education in a way that we could pay for that, that they would not be indebted. So when my kids came along, the first time I had a social security number, the first thing I did was to open a 529 plan for them and begin saving year after year out of my pay and out of my wife's pay. We saved together, and of course, part of that was sacrifice. There were things we didn't buy because we were doing that. And then uh, last August, President Biden said he would forgive $10,000 of student loan. And I got to tell you, (laughs) the vein in my neck, (laughs) I went a little ballistic. Now I really had some good reasons. I, I do, and I think there's still good reasons, legitimate reasons, to disagree with policy. One, it wasn't aimed at the poor. You look at the wage structure. Those who could make the people who are being forgiven who are making a heck of a lot more money than I do and most of you do, who are buying luxury cars and vacation homes, privileged people got this. It wasn't targeted at the poor. Secondly, it did nothing to address the fundamental problem of the cost of higher education. It did nothing to penalize the higher education system or to reform it in any way. And so what we're doing is kind of filling a hole or or emptying a hole that's going to get filled again. Thirdly, it creates a moral hazard. Right? A moral hazard that it actually incentivizes more debt and encourages colleges to put people more into debt because only a chump pays his bills, right? That's kind of the lesson that could come out of this. I didn't like the fact that it was done without any type of congressional uh, oversight or involvement at all. I mean, I believe it will be held to be unconstitutional. And of course, unlike Robert Smith and his, it wasn't with the president's money right it was with the taxpayers money not a generous philanthropist. and I think all those arguments all those reasons are legit things that we could talk about as far as policy and whether this is right or wrong but I know deep down in my heart that it's more than that that is about what this parable is about that I Feel a sense of injustice because I feel as though I'm the 6 a.m. worker I did the right thing Jesus what then shall we have we've been here from the beginning these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us equal to me equal to the parents who did the right thing What about us? What do we get for doing the right thing? It's about envy. And deep down in our hearts, we all have it. In society in relation to other people sometimes even to those who are less privileged than ourselves and this parable challenges me it makes me realize how much I have to learn about God and myself about the nature of his kingdom about his generosity and his justice about how little I am like him and how little his kingdom is like the world in which I live how little his ways are like my ways are they your ways I felt like God was saying to my heart, Am I not allowed to do with what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? And my answer is yes! Because I'm a 6 a.m. person. And I'm guessing there's a lot of them here. You see, Jesus is trying to teach us the type of people we should be by showing us the type of people we are. He's holding up a very uncomfortable mirror into our souls. He's trying to teach us about envy. Show it to us. Show us how toxic it is, how destructive it is, how it has no place in his kingdom at all, and how it should have no place in our hearts now. And if we could rid ourselves of that envy, if we could detox, if you will, of that, we would be free. Jesus came to set us free. And if we could get rid of that, we would be free to be more generous rather than envious. More generous to the poor, to the hungry, to the less privileged, to the neighbor, to the coworker. And so what Jesus wants you to do this morning is to search your heart. To find where that envy is in you right now and who it is about or directed to. And he wants you to cut it out, to excise it, to be free of it. And if you do that, not only will you be free, but you will have an insight into what God is like and the very nature of the kingdom of God. In some sense, this parable truly is about grace. It's about our grace towards others in response to God's grace to all of us. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? Let's pray. O oh, Heavenly Father, We do pray that you would help us to be the kind of people that you want us to be, that we would see with kingdom eyes, that we would learn the economy of your kingdom. Father, help us to understand your generosity, your magnanimity, your grace better. And let us understand our own envy better. And help us, Lord, to be free of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join in singing this morning number 295, Let Justice Flow. The musicians will lead us and we will join in on the refrain as indicated on the screen.